Judd Apatow, a comedy industry giant who helped change the landscape with his blend of heartfelt stories and R-rated humor. You know, just having the courage to tell the truth, just getting to the core of people's essence. It's a career he was destined for, studying TV sitcoms as a child, and even interviewing the likes of Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno in high school. They didn't know it was a high school radio station, so I was basically tricking everybody into speaking to me. The writer-director found early success in television, guided by his greatest mentor, whose death had a profound impact on those who worked with him. It was like having almost a program in my head of Gary's approach to breaking things down. But his big breakout came with the 40-year-old virgin, and the streak continued with both critical and commercial blockbusters like Knocked Up and Trainwreck. Apatow shares some of his funniest memories from making films, including his chance to work with wrestler John Cena and the NBA's LeBron James. Plus, he reveals the newest direction his career has taken. How satisfying has it been for you to bring the career full circle. I, it's so funny because it's really all I ever wanted to do. We traveled to LA and met with Apatow at the historic New Art Theater just minutes from his office. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. How true is it that one of the biggest fights you ever got in with your parents was as a, at a, as a kid at an Italian restaurant yeah. out of concern you might miss uh, Steve Martin? Yeah, we were at Villa Parma restaurant. We used to go to a movie on the weekend, and we would go eat at this Italian restaurant, Villa Parma in Hicksville. And I knew that Steve Martin was the guest star on The Carol Burnett Show. And for me, that was like two worlds colliding, two things that I was obsessed with, Carol Burnett Show and Steve Martin. And I, I just couldn't believe it was happening. And again, there was no VCR. There was no way to tape it. And we were eating dinner, and my parents were just taking their sweet-ass time. And I kept going, we got to go, we got to go. And they got more and more mad at me, slowed down, till finally it just erupted into a terrible fight. And then I never saw it. And then a couple of years ago, they put out the entire series of The Cal Burnett Show on DVD, and I bought it. I found the episode. And it was terrible. <laughs> oh, you found the episode you oh, missed. It was terrible. The whole show was terrible. Steve Martin wasn't good in it. Cal Burnett wasn't good in it. It was just a bad episode. Maybe it, it, it was a maybe it was my high expectations. Maybe it was an okay episode. But I remember thinking, well, I guess I didn't really need to get in that big a fight. So he was your hero growing up. I believe you were on vacation in L.A. Mm -hmm. with your grandparents. Yeah. You managed to convince them to drive by his house. What do you do when you spot him? Well, my grandmother lived in Beverly Hills, and I knew where Steve Martin lived, and I was about 13 years old, so I always said, let's drive by his house, just for fun, just like, I can't believe he might be in there. So as a kid, that just blew my mind, like, he might be in that house. Like, now, I live in this neighborhood, and there's a house that is the house that you would see in the credits of an old sitcom, and all day long, people drive up to this house, and they just take pictures of the house. There's tour buses passing by, and they just take pictures of the house. And I'm always like, these morons, these, what are they doing, these idiots? And it takes a lot for me to go like, oh, I would have like been so excited to see the Brady Bunch house. Right. But I'm just like furious that there's always people outside from all around the world to just take a picture of this house. Well, now they've made an industry out of it. Exactly, right? Ex exactly. So, you know, so I mean, I've told the story a zillion times where I met him and asked for his autograph. And, and he said no, which is what I would do. If someone knocked on my door now, I, would, I wouldn't even say no. I would like call uh, security people. Even I'd, a little kid though? Uh, I, I, especially a little kid. Anybody. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, so, um, but he sent me a book, uh, you know, a book uh, after I wrote him a letter complaining about it that said, you know, to Judd, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was speaking to the Judd Apatow. And it's, you know, it was a funny thing because I was 13 years old. And so it meant a lot to me. And I, you know, I, I saved it. And, uh, and, I, and now I look at it in different terms, which is, I thought, oh, I must have made him laugh in that letter I wrote him. And on some level, it made me feel like, oh, this is possible. I made him laugh enough that he, like, sent me a book. Uh, but at the time, that's not what I thought it meant. But I, I do feel like when you make a connection with people you idolize, you know, it's very significant. As you're now really successful, have you talked to him about it since? Oh, yeah, we did a photo for Vanity Fair uh, where 
it was him with a tour bus at my house. It was his suggestion for, for this photograph of him hounding me at my house. And he's the nicest guy ever. I mean, when you look at what he's accomplished and how consistent he's been, I, I, there's very few people who've had careers like that. He's a very, very nice man. We were talking about this uh, a little bit in the uh, makeshift green room, but you were the head of your high school radio station and you're hosting a show where you're interviewing comedians of the likes of Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno. Mm -hmm. How did you go about getting those interviews in high school? Well, I had a friend, Josh Rosenthal, and he would interview bands. And so he would go interview R.E.M. in like 1982 or 83. And he now has his own record label. And now he has his, his own record label. And, and he said to me, uh, you could interview comedians. And so I thought, all right, maybe I'll just use this radio station and I would call their, their publicists and ask them to do an interview for WKWZ Radio. But nobody knew what it was. They didn't know it was a high school radio station. So I was basically tricking everybody into speaking to me. And nobody asked. Nobody ever asked, but I think that, you know, the landscape was very different. No one wanted to talk to comedians. They weren't getting 20 calls a day. If you call Jerry Seinfeld's publicists, he might be doing a radio station here and there to promote a, a club gig, but there weren't people asking to do long, in-depth conversations about comedy. And people weren't that busy. I mean, now people do a lot of publicity. They do a lot of interviews. But back then, I think they were mainly bored, and I think publicists were happy to look like they were doing their job right. by getting them an interview. So then, uh, you know, I would, I'd be able to call Gary Shandling's publicist, and they would say, yeah, he's in Vegas. We'll give him a call tomorrow at 10. Tell about the Leno and Seinfeld experiences specifically. Well, Leno I interviewed at this comedy club, Rascals Comedy Club in New Jersey. And this was, you know, before The Tonight Show. And, you know, he just was so nice. I mean, some people would be incredibly gracious and talk to me for like an, like an hour. And, and Leno was like that. And for me, Leno and Seinfeld, in terms of stand-up comedy, were two of the most important people that I, I really looked up to at the time. I would highlight the... TV guide, try to figure out when all the good comics were on, and they were my favorites. Um, and then, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, I interviewed out here in LA. I was, came out here on vacation, went to this apartment that he was at, and the place was just like completely empty. It was like he moved in 15 minutes before. Yeah. But he was just a comedy machine. He didn't care anything about other aspects at that time, I guess. He was just very focused. And the weird thing was, the night I interviewed him was the night uh, that Gary Shandling hosted The Tonight Show for the first time because he said to me, you know, I'm going over to the improv. Our friend hosted The Tonight Show, our, our friend Gary Shandling, and we're gonna, all going to go watch it. What do you think you gained from those sorts of conversations? Well, I gained everything. I mean, I mean to this day, it's like, you know, a big uh, aspect of what I know, I learned from talking to people because uh, you know, if you'd say to somebody, hey, how do you do it? I mean, if you're just like a kid, like, how do you be a comedian? How do you get on stage? How do you write a joke? How long does it take? Uh, it, it puts you in a headspace. Uh, you know, people said, oh, it takes about seven, eight years to figure out your character and to get comfortable on stage and find yourself. Well, that's a big thing to learn when you're really young because maybe you think it takes two months so it, it sets your clock, it teaches you patience. People told me it would be really hard. People talked a lot about how much they suffered, how little money they made, and so it just put me in the, in, in the head to work really hard and to know that it was gonna you know, take this massive effort and I would have to you know, suffer <laughs> for a while. Like, oh yeah, this is gonna be really difficult. People are gonna hate me on stage for a while and slowly I'm gonna figure this out. There, there was Kind of a funny story, I, I think you're in college, you win an Acapulco trip on a dating show. The which dating is game, during, I, won, I won the dating game. Which is during finals week. Yeah, I was, we were doing finals in this film class, and I was terrible in this film class. I was in the film class with Matt Reeves, uh, you know, who directed Cloverfield and a lot of great movies, and, and his movies were so good. And mine were just idiotic. Like I couldn't. I was shocked if you that if you taped two pieces of film together, that the person moved through frame. Like I didn't. I didn't understand it at all. I was 18 years old. I was very young to be in film school. And then I won the dating game, and I was 
almost failing this class. And I thought, okay, I can either go on the trip to Acapulco or drop this class. And I, I dropped the class. And then soon dropped out of college because I, I didn't have enough money to go to college. My family couldn't afford it and I was just out of, out of cash. So I thought, I'm going to the dating game. I'm, I'm, <laughs> if I'm gonna get booted out of the school, I'm right. not gonna miss out on this trip. And as a comedian, I thought, I gotta go on this trip because it's just so weird. I have to follow through on, <laughs> on this whole experience. What do you think that period in not having much taught you later in life when you've ended up having a lot of success? Well, I, I don't know. I just, I just always thought, oh, you, you just have to work like really hard. You know, I saw, you know, my parents struggle and and have financial issues, and I, I think it made me just not live beyond my means. And I was always willing to. You know, be a dishwasher or a busboy because that's what I did in high school. I did it for years. I was at El Torito for a really long time, bussing tables, and I kind of liked it. So in the back of my head, I always thought, you know, I, I can always f scrap together enough money to pay my rent while I write jokes. And so at school, you know, I just, you know, I made burritos for a year, and I was always that kind of person. Like I'm just going to spend no money and make burritos, uh, and and that will give me, you know the ability to go do stand-up at night for free. So you're, uh, you leave college, uh, you end up moving into an apartment with another young comedian, Adam Sandler, and fast forward some, and your peers, your friends, whether that be Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, Jim Carrey, they're all of a sudden becoming hugely successful, and you aren't yet. Mm -hmm. How are you handling that? Well, I, I you know, Jim Carrey was the one that we all knew was the greatest. Really? Yeah, I mean, he, uh, I mean, he was just such a genius, and we would watch him do stand-up, and, and it was always a matter of time till this thing exploded. And so I lived with Adam Sandler as a, you know, a struggling young comedian, and Jim Carrey would pay me out of his own pocket to help him write In Living Color sketches and jokes for his stand-up. I couldn't get a job on In Living Color. I kept trying to get a job. They kept saying no, but Jim would pay me and he would come over to my house or I'd come over to his house and then we would just write sketches to help him get on more. And then the Ben Stiller show got picked up by Fox. Ben and I you know, created this uh, sketch show and it lasted you know, a season, uh, but that really launched everything that came afterwards. And I, stopped doing stand-up comedy because I got very busy with Ben and I, I couldn't balance it. And also everybody else was so funny and I thought, I don't think I'm as funny as everybody on stage. And, and that's what I was unsure of. Did you stop doing the stand-up comedy just because you were getting so many more writing, producing type gigs or did you make a conscious decision to stop because you felt like your peers were better? Well, it was both. I just thought the universe is steering me away from this. The universe keeps giving me jobs that don't allow me to go on the road and do stand-up. I keep getting these writing opportunities and these producing opportunities, and then at some point, I just I couldn't go to a club at night because I, you know, we were editing the Ben Stiller show, and uh, and 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 at that time, I thought, yeah, I'm not as good as Sandler. I'm not as good as Jim Carrey, and I, and you know maybe. Maybe this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, now I do it again, um, but I also feel like I have more life experience. I was very young, I was in my early 20s, I, so I didn't really have anything to talk about, it's the truth. And I wasn't weird, I didn't have a weird point of view. So without experience and things to tell people or anecdotes, it was, it was pretty thin. Even though I did well and was on the Young Comedian special and would do talk shows, it, it was still pretty weak. The late Gary Shandling said about you, quote, he's taken every situation in life that's left him internally marked and now he's using it creatively. Your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that everybody you know, should be doing that. I mean, that's really the job in a way is to just look at what's happening, good and bad, and try to turn it into some sort of creativity or use it in storytelling or stand up and in some way. I never got discouraged because I always thought, I can't believe I'm allowed to do any of this. I can't believe I'm in comedy and, and that I'm in show business. So even when shows would get canceled or 
you know, I would have a bad stand-up show or a movie would bomb. All I cared about was that I was allowed to do the next one. I just don't want to get kicked out of show business. I, I, it's, it, so to me, it's always been fun. And you always knew you would be, you've said this before, you always knew you would be successful. You just knew it would come a little later on. Well, I always knew that I was going to hang in there. I mean, I didn't know what would ultimately come of any of this. But for me, it was more about being in it than I must achieve this or that. You know, I I always wanted to be as good as everybody else. You know, I always wanted to figure out how to be a better comedian, how to be a better writer or director or filmmaker. But I, I didn't have any lofty goals beyond, oh, I'd like to you know, be strong at, at these things. One of the many things you're famous for today is the onset improvising. Why have you found that to be important to you? Well, when I was a kid, I would always hear about people like Barry Levinson improvising, you know, during the making of Diner, or you'd hear, oh, when they did Stripes, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis would improvise a lot. So it got in my head that that just made these scenes work better. And then the first time I saw it done was with uh, Ben Stiller. We were at the Ben Stiller show, and we would do a sketch. And for instance, we had Run DMC on, and Ben played their agent. And so he would pitch them really bad ideas to help their career, job opportunities. But then they would leave, like, okay, we're done with the sketch. And then as soon as they left, Ben would shoot his close-up and say even crazier ones that he was afraid to say <laughs> to their face because he thought it would insult them. <laughs> and he would improvise, and we, I would feed him jokes, and he would just make stuff up off the top of his head for a long time. So we might have 45 minutes of Ben uh, improvising and then cut that into a three-and-a-half, four-minute sketch. And then during the Larry Sanders show, I saw that Gary did a lot of that type of improvisation in the rehearsals. When we shot the show, he wouldn't do it. But in the three days of rehearsals, he would keep it loose, and it became part of the writing process. So when I started directing, I just tried to build it in that we would always take some time after shooting the script to play and see what else we could find. Because until you get to the location and get to the situation, you don't really know what you would say or what would happen. And so you have to see it on its feet. There are people that don't do that. They just say, hey, don't move a period. I wrote this at home two years ago. It needs to be exactly this. But I I always feel like, at least for what I do, that the actors bring so much to it that I want to make sure that they're a big part of the collaboration. You've uh, had both of your daughters and your wife, actress uh, Leslie Mann, in a number of your films before. I I know you and uh, Leslie met on the set of The uh, Cable Guy. Mm -hmm. Um, What led to the two of you going out on the first date? Uh, Well, I just, she came in and, and... and I'm, you know, the first day I met her, I said, wow, they're, you know, uh, I can't believe I just, you know, met the future Mrs. Apatow. And, uh, and I just meant it. You know, it's just so one you of really moments. didn't mean it. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily know if it would work out. Uh, but yes, I definitely, you know, fell in love uh, instantly. And, uh, and then she's, you know, she's amazing to work with because in addition to being an incredible actress, she, it's a real collaborator in the development of all these movies. You know, we sit and talk about things that could happen and scene ideas, and and uh, that's the reason why I think those movies are strong and also balanced because I want them to be about, you know, the male and the female point of view. So I'll think of a scene and she'll say, "Well, if you're going to do that scene, you know what scene you should do. You should do this type of scene," and uh, that's I think what makes the movies very rich. So how did you get her out on the first date? Uh, I think on the first date she didn't realize it was a date. Okay. That seems to be uh, <laughs> what we learned afterwards, that she just thought we were going to a basketball game, and I thought it was a date, and she just thought she was going to a basketball game with some man. And the rest <laughs> is history. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned her being involved, though. Like, How involved uh, will she be in your work typically today? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I think for both of us, everything we do is... Uh, you know, brought home and discussed in in great detail. We're both trying to, you know, pay attention to what the other person's doing and read things and be a sounding board. And then when we do projects together, you know, then that's a very intensive thing because, you know, we're coming up with outlines and talking through uh, 
you know, what these stories might be and, and, and what we want to say. And, uh, and that process sometimes takes years. It's years of discussions about how things should, should work. Yeah, if you do a movie like This is 40, you're, you're, I mean, it's years of, what if he does this? What if he does that? What would she do? What would he do? Does that make sense? Is that right? And, and then on the set, and then in, in editing. You know? And then there are instances that you pull from real life. I know Knocked Up, the scene where Katherine Heigl's mm -hmm. character kicks Seth Rogen's yes. out of the car going to yeah. the gynecologist. That actually yeah. happened to you. So how often today will you still pull stuff from real life into your films? Well, I think all writers are just looking for anything interesting that happens to, to morph into something else. So it could be anything. It could be something that like, you say to me, and then I go, oh, that was kind of a weird thing to say. Maybe I'll have Paul Russ say that to, you know, to uh, Gillian Jacobs on Love. I, I just think you're just always paying attention. And do you make note of it as soon as you... Well, sometimes it's just in the back of your okay. head. But for the most part, you're just, uh, you know, I think every writer is, you know, making stuff up completely and then seeing if anything interesting happens in life. And, uh, and then sometimes it's a combination. There's a little nugget of something that someone said or something that happened, and then it gets kind of mutated into something else. You'll famously work with the same actors and writers over and over again. Why? I, I just think if you like people, you just want, want to see them again. You know, sometimes it's as simple as, oh, I'm not even gonna hang out with this person unless we make a movie because everybody's busy. And also, uh, just creatively, you, 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 know, you just get a kick out of somebody and you just keep wanting to explore some aspect of them. And when you realize that you get along well and you're in sync, it's pretty rare. Like, you know, when you see bands break up and you're like, how can they break up? Don't they understand that this magic they have together they're not gonna have with other people? That it's rare that people have, uh, you know, that you know, work together so well. Um, but isn't that reasonably unique in this industry, to have a, a team that you're working with? Well, it's always morphing because everybody also has their own mm -hmm. visions about what they want to do. So you really can't keep a team together because everybody wants to write their own movies and direct their own movies and have their own companies. And so there's a natural, uh, you know, a disillusion of every group you make, but hopefully as years go by, we keep finding ways to reconnect, you know? But there's like moments when you work a lot with a bunch of people for like five or six years and then they kind of drift off and then maybe they drift back in. And that's just the nature of uh, the business and also creativity because there are people I love, but I might be at a period where I just don't have an idea to say, hey, let's go make something. Explain the different roles you'll have on projects, whether that be writer, producer, director, and what those roles actually entail. Well, every, every movie's different because it's like you're building a football team. And so on one movie, I might be deeply involved in the writing. Uh, maybe it's a collaboration for years of giving notes. And on another movie, we have a couple of meetings and they write an amazing script and there's not that much to do on the writing side, but I might have to figure out how to get them the, this actor. And my job becomes, how can I convince this actor to do it? Or I might have to convince the studio to want to make the movie. So it really depends on the situation. You know, every situation is, has been different. I mean, I'm, I, all I really want is like the script to be good, to have the right cast, to have enough money to make it, and to make sure we don't screw up the edit. So I'm just paying attention to every part of it. And, and some movies, you know, they need a lot of help in one area, but not another area. Sometimes the shoot goes great, but the edit doesn't seem to be working, and so I'll try to be more involved there. Sometimes the edit works great, and there's literally nothing for me to do. And, and with your roles now, do you find yourself more just being able to kind of step in and fill the gaps as needed? Yeah, I mean, that's how I, I always uh, looked at it, that there are movies that I make and then there are movies that I'm supporting other people. You know, I remember when we uh, were testing super bad, I went to the first preview and the place just exploded. And I thought, all right, I guess I don't have anything to do here. Really? <laughs> I think Greg Matola, our director, has it all covered. And I went home and took a nap. 
you know, other times we spend six months re-editing a movie because for some reason it's not working, and then we do reshoots and we try to figure out what the problem is, and, and then that becomes a big project. How have you gone about finding and developing young talent over the years? I just, uh, I'm just like anybody else, I might go, oh my God, that woman's so funny, except unlike other people, I might think, oh, I wonder what she'd be like in a movie. I wonder what she'd be like if a movie was built around her, and then I just tried to see if I could make that happen. And it doesn't always work. You know, sometimes we write a script and it falls apart. Sometimes the person never finishes the script. And, you know, with somebody like Amy Schumer, you know, she's a brilliant woman and she worked very, very hard. It was very dedicated to make that happen. And so, you know, that became a very, you know, fun, positive experience doing Trainwreck. But it really is about finding someone that you just want to see in things. And, you know, I heard Amy on the radio and I just thought, it just feels like she has stories to tell. And so I just called her and said, you know, what do, what do you got? What are you thinking about? And what did you hear on the radio that made you think that? Well, I was just listening to the radio. And again, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not scouting. I'm not looking for anybody. But I was sitting in my car and she was talking about her dad who has MS. And she just found a way to talk about it in terms that were really funny, but also really emotional and sad. It was really all the emotions at the same time. And it was very, very honest and compassionate. And then she talked about relationships, and I just thought, I think these are movies. I think what she's saying right now, you know, these are movies. So I asked if she wanted to meet and just said, what are you thinking about? You know, have you ever thought about making a movie? Ever thought about what that might be? And then eventually we just had a long conversation, and, and I said, you know, how are your relationships working? What's going well? What's going badly? You know, uh, how would you describe them? And that led to her thinking about it and coming up with Trainwreck. What happened from when you wrote an unsolicited mm -hmm. email to Lena Dunham, mm -hmm. between that and actually HBO's Girls mm -hmm. coming on the air? I was sent uh, you know, a DVD of this movie Lena Dunham made, Tiny Furniture. And I watched it uh, with my wife. And I was just blown away. It was just everything that I like in movies. It was human comedy. It was very honest. It was sweet. And it, it just made me laugh my ass off. I just got it. I thought, this is like, you know, it's like a, a young person making a James Brooks movie. It, it really felt like a, like, a, like a version of that from like a very young person. And it looked really good and it was made for 40 or $50,000 and so I thought this is a really amazing person. But at the time I didn't know, I didn't even know that the actress was the writer, director, producer. Mm. I, I realized that afterwards, oh she did all of this. Then it just seemed crazy, like who is this person that can do this? So I wrote her an email and I said, if you ever need somebody to screw up your career, you know, <laughs> let me know. And, um, and then I found out afterwards that she was just about to make a deal with HBO to do a series uh, with a friend of mine, Jenny Connor, who I worked with on this TV show, Undeclared. And then Jenny and Lena said, hey, do you wanna you know, join the team on this? And I, I was thrilled to, to do it. I hadn't worked in TV for you know, a long time. Uh, but I thought, oh, this is, this is gonna be something special. What impressed you, though, about Steve Carell mm -hmm. that made you decide you wanted to work with him? We were you know, shooting Anchorman, and uh, I was one of the producers, and we would watch Steve every day, and there was this feeling on the set that Steve was just on fire. Like, he just was so hilarious. It was making everybody else laugh so hard. People couldn't wait to get to the brick scenes to shoot those scenes. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I just said, hey, have you ever thought about making a movie where you're the lead of the movie? Have any ideas laying around? And I don't think he had ever thought about it that much. Really? You know, he wasn't a kid. You know, he was a real veteran, but those opportunities had never come, so it wasn't like he had a notebook 
filled with a zillion ideas. And do you think he was thinking he'd never get to that place? I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, he had been on The Daily Show. He stole a bunch of scenes in Bruce Almighty. And, you know, everybody thought that he was one of the, the great, you know, comedians. Uh, and But he had also been on, like, sitcoms that didn't do well and movies that didn't do well. So in some ways, he was a bit of a journeyman actor. And then he came in one day and said, you know, I've had these, I have these two ideas. And one of them was, I always thought it'd be funny to play a 40-year-old virgin. We did a sketch at Second City that never quite got finished, but I, I think that would be funny. And then he started saying, you know, it's, we used to do a sketch at a poker game where everyone's talking about sex. And the one guy, all his stories seem made up. You know, like, you know, like when you touch a woman's breast and it feels like a bag of sand. And I just thought, that's the funniest idea ever. And I also felt instantly like, oh, I understand what that is. I understand the shame of being embarrassed, uh, you know, with a woman, feeling like if you get intimate with a woman, she's going to instantly think you're a freak and reject you. I, I, and so, uh, you know, it felt like, oh, this is, this will be great. And then he's an amazing writer, really. Uh, an incredible writer, and and we just had a, a blast writing it and shooting it. He's just a very special person. That's why everybody loves Steve. He's just really a, a unique, one-of-a-kind talent. Yeah, I want to talk to you about some of the uh, athletes and your connection to uh, sports as well, the first being LeBron. How was coaching him on his voice? Well, every time we make a movie, we always try to make little short movies to promote the movies. So we made this this little film where I'm mean to all the athletes who were in Trainwreck. So every time a new athlete was on the set, we would do a couple of takes where I would come in and yell at them after the fact. And LeBron was very, very game. You never know <laughs> if they appreciate your, your joke or not. Uh, but LeBron was really strong. I, and I don't, to this day, I don't know how he prepared for Trainwreck because he came in really knowing what he was doing as an actor, as a comedian. He, um, he never said, I don't want to say that, mm -hmm. which would be easy to do. Like, I don't want to be seen in that light. Oh, that's corny. Oh, that, yeah, if that doesn't work, then that would be bad. So let's not do it. Anything you ask them to do, he would do and really commit to it hard, which is what you need to do in a comedy. You have to trust that the director is not going to make you look bad, but you have to take a lot of risks and 80% of it is going to completely fail. And you have to believe the director will pick the little moments that work. And because he did that, he's hysterical in the movie. How was John Cena to work with? John Cena is so funny. I, you know, I, I hadn't been following professional wrestling. I was more of a Bob Backman guy. And uh, so when I saw the tape of John, I, I, I didn't know who he was. I, I, I just thought, this is an actor who's hysterical. And then they said, oh, he's the champion. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. Um, and then I realized, oh, he's a giant star. And we did a table read. We hadn't hired him yet, but we said, hey, John, you want to come do this table read? We're going to see how the script's working. And he you know, drove down from San Diego and got bigger laughs than anybody at the table read. Than anybody? <laughs> yeah. We just smoked everybody. And so we hired him. And then on the set, did the same thing every day. So hilarious. What do you think he did that made him so funny? I think he's just not self-conscious. He really trusted. He came in prepared. I think he probably thought of a lot of uh, ideas that you know, we were happy to, to shoot. Just not self-conscious, uh, and and he's hysterical. He's just a really, really funny man. Your parents get divorced, I believe, when you're in uh, middle school, yep. and you said it made you question everything. Yeah. How so? Well, I think when your parents are struggling, and you see them not treating each other very well, you know, these are the people you go to for advice. And so, as a little kid, you just think, I don't really agree with what they're doing here in this situation, so can I trust other advice that I'm getting? And so it makes you feel like, oh, I think I need to figure some of this out on my own, which is also probably really unhealthy. But, you know, I think for some people that can bring them down. You know, you can 
have a hard time with it. For me, it made me very focused on just having my shit together. Like when you're scared and you don't feel like you're in a stable situation, um, sometimes, and not for everybody, but for me, I thought, oh, I have to create a stable situation. I need to, I need to understand what my job is going to be. I need to know how I'm going to make money. I'm going to, I, I need to take care of myself. And that doesn't mean that my parents weren't super nice. I mean, they were very supportive. They really believed I could do everything that I went on to do. And my dad would drive me to comedy clubs at night. And my mom got a job as a hostess at a comedy club when I was a kid. So they did these amazing things to support me. But I personally thought, I really felt like I'm on my own. Even though I wasn't, but that's as a little kid, I thought. And when they, got, that. when they got divorced, you lived with your dad, your sister lived with your mom, your yeah. brother lived with your maternal grandparents. How yeah. difficult was that for the siblings to all be apart? Well, it's just, a, it's just a weird thing. You don't know how weird it is till 10 years later or 15 years later. It doesn't even occur to you how, you know, how everything just broke up. And you didn't feel that at the time? Like, well, I did, but I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't break it down for you. It just was what it was. And then years later, you're like, oh, wow, the family unit really dispersed. And it affected all of us in, in major ways. But at the time, you just thought, oh, I got homework. I got to <laughs> deal with like junior high school or high school. Uh, but whatever that, you know, stability or family unit was, was no longer there anymore. How, if at all, do you think uh, not being a good athlete when you were growing up impacted you? Well, I think it impacted me in a big way because it was a daily humiliation. If you were picked last in gym class at school, well, that happened every day. So if they put you all up against a wall and said, I want that guy, I want that guy, I want that girl, I want that person, and you're just standing up against a fence and then you're put in the worst position where the ball will never come to you during the game, or you're playing very little. You know, as a kid, that happens from kindergarten to 12th grade. That's 13 years of being defined negatively and having to like, suffer that humiliation every single day. How would it make you feel? Well, it would make you feel terrible. And then for me, I thought, well, I guess this is, isn't how I'm gonna s stick out and, and uh, have any self-esteem. I guess I need my own thing, because this thing that everyone's doing, I'm not, I guess I'm not good at. Maybe I would have gotten good if I got to play, but in a way you don't really even get to play. Uh, so that probably led me to comedy uh, in, in some respects, because I was looking to get noticed. You've said before, I used to always feel inadequate in every way except my ability to work hard enough to succeed in comedy. Mm -hmm. How so? I just think that there was something about comedy that made me feel safe because I, I always connected like, oh, if you just work hard at this, you'll be okay. So if someone says, I need 10 jokes, in my head I thought, oh, I can write them 100 jokes and then they'll like me and then I can keep working. So they, they always felt like there was some control uh, in in the work that would would uh, would support me because I was always willing to over deliver and I always tell that when people you know ask me for advice I, was, I always say don't be a dick over deliver and then people will want you around how many hours did you find yourself working and how over the years have you found that impact either health or personal life well, when you're young, that's, that's, that's all there is. You're just, I mean, you don't think about anything but working. And then you, as you get older, you, you, know, you have to balance. You know, if we're talking about this interview and you say, I need this many hours, I'm like, I only have this many hours because I have to pick up my kid from school from, you know, at five, five o'clock and you're just trying to figure out what it balances, you know, where my day might have been eight or nine o'clock till 1.30 in the morning now I think, okay, I gotta fit my day into 8.30 to 4.30 and so that I can be a normal human being. And it's hard because sometimes you have more work than there are hours mm -hmm. or the work is distracting because if something's going wrong, you might go home and it's still in your head. And so you have to learn how to let it go when you walk through the doors and 
and get home. And if you're upset or like you just made a movie and you think this one may not be working, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to just drop it. Uh, and but you you spend your life trying to figure out how to be sane and how to how to uh, have some sense of perspective about what's important and what's not important. Well, and you've also said you'll pretend to be a very positive person, yeah. but you're anything but in your head. Well, in, in, my, in your head sometimes, like, you know, I have a problem where I'm always like, I'm just, my head races, I'm just like thinking. And I think some, some of that is from childhood where, you know, you're like a catastrophic thinker. So for me, one of the reasons why I, I do a decent job at what I do is, I'm always thinking, if something went wrong, what would it be? And I try to do something that prevents it. So I'm just like, okay, where's the, where's the earthquake food? Where's the water? Where, you know, do my kids know where to go? Do, you know, I can, and I can, go, I can spin that out, mm -hmm. uh, but I might be spinning 30 of those, some work, some home, and my head is just trying to prevent problems, which is very unhealthy, but in a weird way in show business, it makes you succeed. So it's, it's tricky. And, you, and you've been open about this before. How have you found going to a therapist and hypno, yeah. hypnotherapist? Help yeah. Well, it, it helps you understand all of it. And uh, I don't know how much of it has worked. I mean, if I go through my journals and read what I was writing, you know, in the early 90s, it, you, it's almost exactly what I wrote yesterday in terms of how I feel, what I'm struggling with, what I'm trying to do. I hope it's helped. Uh, I guess it probably has, but I, you know, it's a, you know, it's a lifelong struggle to be sane. It's a lifelong struggle to just find a way to be peaceful and to be a nice person and to not beat up on yourself or be a nightmare to other people. I want to just uh, run through some uh, random moments. The first being, you mentioned the Ben Stiller show. Um, Freaks and Geeks had gotten canceled. Then your executive producer on. Uh, the Ben Stiller show. When that gets canceled, tell about what you sent to the Fox executives. Well, what happened was we were doing this show undeclared, and um, I went back to Fox after the Ben Stiller show was canceled. It had been, it had been a long time, you know, it had been uh, seven years. And now, seven years later, the same person that canceled the Ben Stiller show was running Fox again. Ah, okay. And he promised me that this time he would let us have an entire season. That no matter what, I'm gonna give you an entire season. Uh, I'm gonna let you find your audience. And then they r reduced our order. You know, we were supposed to have a certain amount of episodes and then they took some episodes away, which is always the precursor to you're gonna get canceled. And that happened right when this rave review came out in Time Magazine. They listed the 10 best shows of the year. And, and so I framed this article and sent it to his office with a note. And I'm paraphrasing, but it basically said, I don't understand how you're able to have sex with me from behind, let's say, <laughs> since, your, since your penis is still in me from last time. <laughs> I think over the years I've punched up that joke somehow. Um, and then uh, the, 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 his assistant saw it and thought, oh, this is going to end Judd's career and sent it back to DreamWorks. Really? Without, without uh, showing him. And, and then recently, my friend uh, Justin Falvey, who, who is still the executive at DreamWorks, who runs DreamWorks TV, he found it and sent it to me with the note on it. He's had it in his office for a long time. Has to be um, one of the coolest experiences for any producer or director to get a call from Steven Spielberg mm -hmm. uh, commending uh, you know, your, your work. Um, what happens when he called you to praise knocked up. Well, this funny thing happened, which was um, we were doing Freaks and Geeks for Steven Spielberg's company for DreamWorks. And I don't know how he did it, but Paul Feig sent a note to Steven Spielberg or something, and then Steven Spielberg wrote him a, a long letter about how much he loved Freaks and Geeks. And I was like, I want a letter from Spielberg. I, I need self-esteem. How do I get a letter from Spielberg? So I wrote this funny letter to Spielberg hoping to get a letter back. 
and then the assistant said. What did you write him? I forgot, but it was really funny and weird. And then the assistant said, Stephen won't get these jokes. <laughs> she literally didn't show him the letter. I don't even know. Oh, she no didn't. Okay. She did. I don't even know what my letter okay. was, but I just remember she said, he's not going to get your sense of humor. Yeah. Maybe she was wrong. Maybe he would have completely gotten it. Um, then years later, when uh, we did Knocked Up, someone said, says Steven Spielberg is trying to reach you because he saw the movie and he, he loves it. He wants to tell you. And I, I was on vacation at the time and I said, can you ask him, just tell him I'm on vacation and hard to reach and would it be possible if he just sent me a letter? And then he did. And then he wrote me this like, very, very sweet letter about Knocked Up. And now he said, oh, this feels like it's like the American graffiti of this generation. And it was... Uh, Something very nice. No one, I mean, you, no one writes letters anymore. Like you get emails, and you're like, "Oh God, I wish I was a letter or something." How do you not take a call from Steven Spielberg? I, you know, I, I'm a hoarder, so I okay. need something permanent. That that's my issue. Bill Cosby, how do you view him? I, you know, I think it's a, you know, it's a real uh, tragedy. You know, it's, you know, most of all for you know his victims. And then I think it's it's tragic because he did a lot of good for you know people for a long time, and people were really inspired by him and made uh, them feel like uh, they could achieve things. Uh, and he was a very important symbol. So for that to you know go away is you know that's that's it's really awful. But it's you know it's a very sick, twisted person. I'm glad he's in the justice system and that people have gotten uh, you know some sense of relief from the fact that they are believed now. For a long time people were like, are these people just trying to make money? And, and no, it's, it's a, you know, an enormous amount of people that really suffered uh, as a result of uh, you know, what he did to them. And, and I'm glad that I think the world understands that it happened. And, and that I think encourages other people to come forward because when people are ignored uh, or aren't treated well, I think it, it sends a message, don't speak up when something bad happens. What did one of the victims tell you that angered you the most? Uh, well, I, I mean, I've actually now met a bunch of victims at, at, at different events. Uh, I mean, what angers me the most is uh, that he attacks the victims. You know, when you, know, when you call them all liars and uh, they're telling the truth, in a way you're re, you know, you know, re-abusing them or re-victimizing them. It's, uh, that, that's the worst thing that that you can do. Uh, but I think all of those people have been very strong and uh, steadfast. And so hopefully, you know, next year, you know, he'll go to trial and then the, the truth will come out in a, in, a, in a larger way. How do you view Donald Trump? Well, I think he's a sociopath. I think he's a very, very dangerous person. I think even if you believed in a lot of conservative values, you shouldn't support him because I don't think Donald Trump believes in those values. I think that he's a you know, a heat seeker. He's somebody looking for power. You know, and when you're a seven-year-old man and you have not spent any time concerned about anybody but yourself and your family, like you've done nothing for the world, I don't think suddenly you're that person that cares about the happiness and the, you know, and, you know, the, uh, and the country. Uh, I think it's like a it's like a crazy person. I honestly think it's a crazy person. And even if you're like, I want my taxes to be lower, yeah, it's not enough because when North Korea does you know a missile test, this is not a person that can be trusted in a delicate situation to figure out how to handle very complex situations. You know, you, you can tell this is not a person that understands any issue deeply. This is the most important job in the world and you can't give it to an idiot. Even if you agree with him about a trade pact or about some other position he has, it's a crazy person. And you'll agree with a couple of positions with any crazy person, but he certainly shouldn't be in a position of power. It's very, very dangerous. You started doing stand-up again, mm -hmm. um, I believe because you, you felt your self-esteem uh, getting low. First, like, why did you think that would well, Help I was having stage fright. I started getting stage fright, and I'd have to speak or be on a TV show. I was on Conan once, and I was talking, 
and I got really nervous, and I got so nervous that I inverted a couple of words, so what I was saying made no sense. And then it was like a joke that bombed, and I remember Conan looking at me like, oh no, you're bringing me down. This ship is going down. And you really <laughs> felt that. Oh, I felt it like, oh, I'm in, I'm in trouble okay. right here. Um, so in a way, it was a way, in a way it was a way, what a terrible sentence. Uh, you know, it, it was a way to say to myself, oh, I think you know, what I have to say uh, has enough value to, to, to say because it's easy to think, ah, shut up, Judd, who cares what you have to say? And so it's a good message for me to send to myself to speak up and do stand-up. And I missed it a lot. I saw how much fun Amy Schumer was having. And I, and I liked the whole comedy scene and I felt like I want to be a part of that. I'm sick of being a director sitting in a room alone with an editor. I don't feel like I'm part of a community in the way uh, comedy is this wonderful tribe. And I, and I missed all the people because I used to hang out with all the comedians all the time and that was my favorite thing. So I started doing it again and slowly over the course of the last few years it, it's gotten to the place where like, I'm happy with what I'm doing and I'll, hopefully I'll do a special next year and it's just been you know so fun and it's fun to just have a direct relationship with the audience and not just be you know by yourself typing in your underwear and when you were in uh, new york for the four months of shooting train wreck yeah. you i believe did stand up nightly you did mm -hmm. a set on the tonight show as well how satisfying has it been for you to bring the career full circle in, in uh, it's so funny because it's really all I ever wanted to do. I wasn't a kid dreaming of being a director or a screenwriter. I wanted to be Seinfeld or Leno. That was the dream. So to get to do it in any way, small or large, is, is so much fun. And it's also, it's just really like an enjoyable thing to do when it's going well. And it's kind of fun to do when it's not going well. It's very, uh, you know, it's like an invigorating thing to do because it's so terrifying. And so sometimes it's good to force yourself to move towards things that are really difficult and scary. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.